Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Fall Bible Conference. This is our first evening session, and we're delighted to have all of you with us. A couple of announcements I'd like to make, and very briefly call your attention to a couple of the inserts that are in the bulletin today. Church cleanup day coming up Saturday. This is a time, not only is it practical and we get a lot cleaned up, but it's fun. You get to meet people, uh, get a chance to work side by side with each other. So be sure to read that insert carefully. You'll get the times and all the information that is necessary. We have a brand new website that is new as of today. And the uh, address is the same as the other one, www.auc.org. So check that out and pass that along to others. There are many opportunities when somebody asks you about the church, you don't have a long time to talk or something, you can give them that address and they'll look that up as well. Also, um, thanking everyone who participated in Trunk or Treat last night. Your prayers and participation and donations were very much appreciated, and we've got a lot of good reports, and probably there were um, a thousand youngsters who were involved in that. And then this one time, this is a first time announcement, uh, establishment of a designated fund to which you can contribute to enable us to replace the sanctuary projector that is almost 10 years old and uh, the technology has advanced to the point that if we get a new one, you might even be able to see vividly colors and images that are on the screen and that's what we'd obviously like to have. So let's look to the Lord together in prayer tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to acknowledge your presence here with us and within us. Thank you for giving to us the Fall Bible Conference. Thank you for those who are willing to come and to be our teachers who will direct us to your word. Thank you for what it is that you'll teach us. Thank you for the response in advance from each one of us as we think in terms of some things we're supposed to remember and some things that maybe we need to forget. But help us to be able to keep pressing forward, looking to you in the past to be reminded of your faithfulness and in the present and in the future to remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you for that and thank you for all you have in store for us this evening. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I thought about our service this morning and the message and the centennial, there's a song, I guess you could say it's almost a song for all seasons. 43, great is thy faithfulness, our faithfulness wavers, God's doesn't, and that's what keeps us alive and well and pressing on towards glory. So would you stand with me and sing all three stanzas of great is thy faithfulness.
seated. all be thankful, especially for celebrating 100 years. Uh, I'm up to uh, lifting up Don and Sue Apgar, our missionaries in, that essentially work with the University of California, and nice weather that they have to work into. Uh, <clears throat> let's lift them before the Lord right now. 
Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for our heritage here and especially our heritage of sending out, Lord, sending out to the mission field. We thank you for those that work out of this church in the mission field around us in Alden. We thank you for those that work in this state, in this country, and those that we send far off. We especially lift up Don and Sue this week, Lord. We ask that you continue to soften the hearts of especially the international students that they work with and just help them to be open to receive the, the great news of your gospel, Lord. We thank you for their many years of service and ask that you continue to give them health and guidance and encouragement, Lord, as they service you in California. We thank you so much for everything that you've given us, Lord, in this church. And as we give back a small portion of that to you right now, we ask that you bless these offerings and multiply them and give guidance to those that decide where those funds will go. And we thank you for everything you give them. In your precious name we pray. Amen. It's always good to sing about the wondrous love of God and His gift for us. And as I was thinking of songs to sing tonight, I was drawn to a couple that speak of God's work for us in the past, His faithfulness, like the hymn we just sang. So would you stand with me? And I trust you know these. The second one may be a little new. I sang it a couple weeks ago in a morning service, but uh, uh, let's give it a try and praise the Lord together. Please stand with us.
I'd like to introduce our speaker tonight, Dick Ostian, and his wife, Sue. Would you stand so we can... Welcome. In the Fall Bible Conference brochure, you'll read some of the same information, but Dick retired in 2012 from full-time ministry, which involved nine years at First Baptist Church in Newtown Square, five years with Search Ministries, 23 years at Christ Community Church in Westchester. I'm doing the math He's 92. <laughs> He's been married to Sue for 41 years. I've got to say we've been married longer than that. Beth and I have been. Um, they have two daughters and a son-in-law. And his connection to AUC is a very simple one. He grew up attending Alden Union Church with his family. He also met and married his wife and was ordained at the church. And Dick and Sue are both illustrations, again, of this morning about the heritage that gets passed on from family member to family member across the generations. Uh, But the thing I really want to say about Dick... (laughs) No, the thing I really want to say I won't say, but something that I do want to say is it was about 35 years ago. I was the... uh, No, it was more than 35 years ago. I was a youth pastor here, and we were suddenly without a pastor... And there were a lot of things that were happening, things that I had never experienced before nor been trained before. So I would call Dick, and invariably, the advice that he would give me, I'd say, we've got this problem here and we're really struggling with it. He'd say, and I'll never forget this, he would always ask me the question, what does the word say? And um, he never gave me an answer. (laughs) What does the word say? And um, I found out what the word said, or I reviewed that and went went over that. But uh, what better person can I think of to be helping us, teaching us during a Bible conference and somebody who always wants to know what does the word say? God bless you. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. It is an honor and just it's fun to be here on the 100th anniversary. Uh, Paul one time thought I was here for most of those 100 years, but uh, he's always had a problem with math and statistics. You know that from his pitching in in college and baseball. He he never can get his uh, his win-loss records right or correct or anything else like that or who actually could hit him every time he was up. But um, uh, 
It is good to be here. And, you know, I almost thought I was born here at this church. I was told I was born at what was called Fitzgerald Mercy. But uh, I actually lived uh, right across from the schoolyard here on Woodlawn Avenue, which I've always gone by. And if I wasn't there or playing on the field there, I was over here at the church. It seems like I was here for everything. And I went, grew up through everything, which is good and it's bad. It's bad because I look at you and some of you still have my history. And that's dangerous. I look at uh, some of you and know that you've been praying for me because of that, and that's been good. Uh, but uh, it is uh, interesting just to be here and to celebrate this time. And my wife and I have grown up here. And until the time uh, we were married uh, here in this church and then went off, uh, I guess, to my final year at uh, seminary down Dallas, Texas, and then off to ministry from that point on, uh, we'd been here. So... But now, in the last three years, we're back. As Paul said, I retired three years ago. Actually, it all started somewhat six years ago. I got, uh, this is an interest, it was shingles in my eye. And um, it started a process which made it difficult to do what I do. And it's much slower to do what I'm going to do now uh, in the long run. But, uh, you know, that started it. And three years ago, I realized that uh, I needed to slow down at that point. But uh, we're going to have a look at God's Word, and I want to pray first, so pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, churches come and go. There are so many of them that have come and gone since Christ died for us, but Lord, we tell you that we love this church. We really do. And we're so in debt to what you have done for us in this church and in our lives. Our hearts are concerned, as they always are, as we look to the future, because we don't know it or understand it. Yet we know that your heart is not. We know that you are sovereign and that your plan is perfect, and so we trust you. So please, Father, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. Forgive our speaker tonight, for his sins are too many to count. Help us to see Christ, just Christ, and through him we pray. Amen. Now, Joshua 4 is an interesting little section in the Old Testament. The fourth chapter starts out, and I'm going to start reading at the first part, and then I'm going to skip to the end. It says this, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel that this might be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And then the intervening verses, it tells a little more of how that happened in the crossing. But we're going to jump to the end and look at verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, we've read a portion of Joshua that deals with the crossing of the Jordan River. And like all good stories, it is written in episodes. There have been two already till we come to this point. 
Chapter 1 concerns Joshua and his first commands, for he had just taken over upon the death of Moses. And it was his first commands to lead the people. The focus was on him. Chapter 2 concerns the sending of the spies into the promised land and their meeting with Rahab in Jericho. Then it tells of her act of faith in protecting them, and the focus of that chapter is on her. But now, in chapters 3 to 5, we have the beginning of this new episode, the crossing of the Jordan River. This is an event that the people of Israel had been waiting for, not merely for 40 years since they left Egypt and wandered in the desert, but really, in a certain sense, they'd been waiting for a half a millennium, for 500 years. For the promise of the land goes the whole way back to God's promise to Abraham when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and said that he was giving him a new land. God told Abraham what that land was and where it was and that one day he was going to drive out the people of that land so that Abraham's descendants might go in. And the people had been waiting for that moment and that moment has now come. Chapters 3, chapter 4 explicitly mention the Ark of the Covenant. They do so 16 times. That was very important, the Ark of the Covenant, to them, because it symbolized the presence of God. So when the people crossed the flooded Jordan River, as the story tells us they did, they did so following the presence of the Ark. There wasn't any use crossing that river to bring about the conquest of the Promised Land unless... God went before them, unless God delivered that land into their hands. And they couldn't cross that flooded river except in obedience to the words of God through Moses. They had to have their hearts right with God. And it had taken 40-some years for that to take place at this point. So when the priests bearing the ark touched the water, it suddenly stopped flowing, even though it was at a great flood tide. It suddenly stopped flowing until the last of the people crossed over into the promised land. Now, you may recall that the people of Israel had been led by God under Moses' direction to escape slavery in Egypt almost 40 years before this time. But what might have been just a simple three-week journey from Egypt up to the promised land took so much longer. Why? It wasn't because God could not pull it off but because soon after they left Egypt, their hearts were not right with God. They forgot the great work of God allowing them to leave Egypt. They forgot that God parted the Red Sea so that they could get away from Pharaoh and his armies. And anxiety was the result of their forgetting. They became anxious, and they began to fear about the water needs that they would have as they crossed into that desert. There there might not be water. We can't find water. What's going to happen to us? And then they said, what if it's not fruit? There's food out there. We don't have any food. And and then as they started to get some, they thought, well, what if we don't like the food that, that we're getting out here? And they continued to complain and murmur in those beginning times, right up to the time that God told Moses to send 12 spies to scout out the promised land. And of those 12 spies... Two came back with the grapes, but ten came back with the gripes. And the people voted democratically to join the majority report. Here's what they said. I'm just going to read a little section from Numbers 14, but it starts in verse 2. You can look it up later. But it says this, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose another leader and go back to Egypt. To which the Lord said to Moses later in that uh, that chapter, in uh, Numbers 4, uh, down to verse 12 it would be, he said this, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, talking to Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. God would not allow that group to go into the promised land. 
and it took 38 years for the adults to die off. And only the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, and their families remained, along with the now-grown children from that time. And that's who's now crossing the Jordan River. The significance of the Ark of the Covenant proceeding first into the Jordan is not merely to show them that God might lead the way uh, in any successful enterprise, but that is important. But the significance is it's the same God who must lead the way and be followed. That is the same God who brought them out of Egypt. The same God who called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees. The same God who created the world and everything we know. The miracle of the crossing of the Jordan River is similar in many respects to the crossing of the Red Sea at the time of the Exodus. It's meant to teach that this is the same God who is the same in holiness, the same in justice, and the same in mercy. Now, after they had crossed, and indeed, as we were reading, in conjunction with their crossing, God had told Joshua, who in turn told the leaders of the 12 tribes, that one man from each tribe was to pick up a very large stone out of the then dry Jordan Riverbed and carry it to the other side, to the west side. There they were to set up a memorial at Gilgal, their base of operations for the next few years. Why? Because the people needed a memorial, because they, like us, tended to forget the goodness and the mighty acts of God on their behalf. The story gives three specific reasons for this memorial. First, the generation that was entering the land to conquer it needed a memorial. Why? Because the road ahead would be hard. It wasn't going to be simple. But following God, following what God had to say, it wasn't going to be easy at all, as some people think it always is. But there would be times when they would be discouraged. And the text refers to this generation when it says that to the chosen 12 men in verse 5, take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. Why? That this may be a sign among you. That's the first thing. Now we can readily understand that, can we not? Here were the people of God who had witnessed the great power of God in dividing the river so that they could cross on dry ground. But in the sequence of the next years, as they fought to conquer the land given by God, in their attempts to drive out the Canaanites who were in that land, they would perhaps on occasions become discouraged, just as we become discouraged. It might be for a number of reasons. Perhaps it would be because they had occasional defeats, as in the future at this time, but in Ai, shortly after the walls of Jericho fell down. Or perhaps it was the duration of the fighting. We usually don't think of the duration of all these times when we read through Scripture. But do you know how long it took? It took seven, the next seven years for the people to work through the land and to drive the main bulk out. And then for the next 18 years, the tribes went into their own prescribed areas, and they had to drive out the people. So it's 25 years that they go on from this point. And do you think you'd get discouraged in 25 years of warfare? I would say so. You know, a spring campaign, a summer campaign, was not too difficult, as bad as it is, but to go on for 25 years, that in itself can be discouraging. As we read on in Joshua, we also find out that there were strongholds of the Canaanites that they weren't ever able to overcome. And it's a simple confession as we read through this book. There were places in the battle that they could not drive the enemy out, and that might have been discouraging. You know, come to think of it, isn't it discouraging in your life when you've got some issue that you're dealing with and you know God doesn't want you to, to run with it or to go with it or to live with it? And it goes on and on and you struggle with it? Is that not discouraging? See, this is where we start to fit in as we understand this. But by returning to Gilgal on a regular basis, as they did, since Gilgal was the base of operations over the next years, they would see those stones, and they would look at them and be reminded of the power and the faithfulness of the great God who was with them, leading them in their conquest. You see, we need reminders like that. We go through discouraging times in our lives. We have battles that seem to go on and on and problems that sometimes seem to have no solution. And we need to be reminded that that God is our God. 
And our God is faithful and he's powerful. And if for reasons known only to himself, certainly not to us, his strong right arm, his strong right arm doesn't seem to work at the time I want it to work. Well, then I need to realize it's not because he's weak or because he has changed. It's because it pleases him for some purposes that I just don't understand. And we need to know that. Secondly, the reason for this memorial is that the generations to come would need this memorial, since children easily forget the faith and instructions of their parents. How many times did your parents ever have to tell you about God? Did they, they tell you once and you said, that's it, I'm good, no need to tell me again, give me a Bible right away, I'm going to memorize it from this point on? Or did you tell them over and over and over You know, from my part with search ministries, it's still true. It's at least seven and a half times that somebody's heard the gospel before they even know they've heard the gospel. They begin to understand what some of it means. It's over and over we need to hear and see these things. You see, this reason that we have to tell this to children is emphasized in the story both at the beginning of chapter 4 and at the end, beginning in the middle of verse 6. When your children ask in the times to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. Even there it's emphasized again to a second time. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And then after Joshua had erected that memorial, down in verse 21, we see him saying, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us. That's Moses speaking, or not Moses, but Joshua, until we passed over. See, here, as well as elsewhere, in the word of God, the people are reminded to tell their children of God's mighty acts in past history so that the children might not forget and might remain faithful to their parents' God. We ourselves are so inclined to forget God's goodness and power. You know that if you look at your own heart. So how much more true is that for a generation once removed from the action or a generation removed beyond that? It gets increasingly harder for people to remember the acts of God over time. So we need memorials like that where people can say, well, what does that stand for? And we can say that memorial is is a memorial to the way God acted in my life. Let me tell you about it. And I recall the Israelites needed other reminders. In fact, if you look through the rest of this book and go into the beginning of uh, 1 Samuel, you'll find that there's seven more memorials uh, of different instances in those situations. But the last one, in 1 Samuel 7:12, we're told of the prophet Samuel setting up a memorial which he called Ebenezer. It was on the occasion of a great victory, a victory in which God had supernaturally intervened to defeat the Philistines. It says they were driven out for the remainder of his own lifetime. And to mark that great victory, Samuel set up a great stone that he called Ebenezer. It means stone of help. For And he said in 7.12 of uh, 1 Samuel, till now God has helped us. What I want to suggest is that we need many Ebenezers in our lives. Things that we can look back on and say, well, here is a place where God intervened in my life, where he did something important to which I can look at and be reminded to the character and the presence of our God. We all need these things like that. For some people, it's a place. People often, when they give their testimony, speak of the place where they were when God first broke through to them with his truth. And they can see that place. And I suppose they can physically revisit it at times, or at least mentally revisit that place and say, yes, here is where God brought me out of darkness into light. Here is where he opened my eyes to see and live out his truth. And that's very important. It's the kind of place to which we can bring our children to and tell them those stories of where God has done that very thing to us. Perhaps it's a place of deliverance. And then that term Ebenezer is fitting. 
You were in a difficult place and God did something to solve the problem for you. It's important then to hold that memorial before your eyes and the eyes of your children and your children's children because there are times in life when it seems that we need deliverance or they need deliverance. We need a special intervention from God. And when it seems that God doesn't intervene or doesn't speak, when uh, specifically we're in time, we're, well, we're inclined to say at times, well, maybe God's silent, or maybe God's looking the other way, or maybe God's busy somewhere else in the world, and he's not catching me, what I'm doing. You see, we sometimes think God's forgotten us, and we need memorials to tell us that God has not forgotten us. Even Martin Luther had circumstances like that. In fact, if you study church history, most of the church greats had these times. But when you can go to a place and say, here is where God worked, this is what God did, then that memorial becomes important to you and may well help you get back on the track in difficult times and may well help your family as you tell them of that. I refer to church history. Think about it. Church history is, in a sense, that for us today, a memorial. We talk about the great lights of the past, men like St. Augustine, Savonarola, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, or perhaps even some of the figures of our recent past. So when people ask us, who was William Allen Dean? I say he was a man in whom God did a great work and taught me about God and his word in a way that changed my life. Or when somebody else says, who was Mrs. Pyle? I'd say she was a woman in whom God did a great work and taught me as a little kid about the love of Jesus, and I've never forgotten it. Or who was Len Perrette, or as many of us called him Uncle Len? He was a man in whom God did a great work and showed me what it is to have a passion for serving Christ in the marketplace. Or who was Iona Lister? She was a woman in whom God gave a great passion for the word that oozed out into the lives of many of the women here at Alden Union and to the students at PCB in life-changing applications. These are memorials. Generations need to be reminded of those who have gone before us. And memorials and stories are a chief way to do so. So we need memorials first for ourselves. Second, for our families, for our children, for the people around us. But thirdly... The final thing it says here is that the people of the earth needed a memorial. Why? As a testimony to the existence and nature of the one true God. The last verse of this chapter strikes that note in Joshua 4. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Francis Schaeffer wrote about that in his commentary. The stones were to tell the other nations round about that this God is different. He really exists. He's a living God, a God of real power who is imminent in the world. Wow. Memorials to God are important to the world in which we live. Even though the world's not Christian, in its unregenerate state and the rebellion against God, they're not believers, but they might become believers as they hear about the memorials that we have in our lives. Nevertheless, it's important for them to know that God has worked in our lives and that he's real and that he does intervene in the history and lives of his people. Now, to that I ask the question, well, where does all that leave us? And to the point in which I've been alluding is that we all need memorials in our lives. The people of Israel needed those memorials, and we need our memorials. We need to be reminded, and the reason we need to be reminded is that we're so prone to forget. Okay, let's, let's change it up. You ready? You know, it's getting a little, a little stale. The guy's talking a little longer. I still have more to go, but uh, let's change it up here. I want to take you to a question that I first heard and thought about, um, in this past summer, in the spring, late spring and early summer. You didn't see me around here uh, because I've had an eye infection and I actually lost the sight in one of my eyes. And all that time where I couldn't uh, see, could, didn't, couldn't see either out of both eyes really at that point, but all that time I would be at home and Sue and I'd be there and we'd listen to Max Lucado and we'd listen to all the different people that we've known over the years. And one time Lucado came up with this question. A question that I thought is this. What is the widest river in the world? What's the, you know, I began to think, you know, 
going through my geography. But let me tell you, the widest river in the world is not the Jordan. It's not the Nile. It's not the Amazon. It's for sure not the Delaware, nor the Mississippi. Do you know what the widest river in the world is? Ah, you know it's a trick question. The widest river in the world is a body of water called the river, if only. Millions of people in the banks of the if only river cast longing eyes across the water thinking, if only. And they're convinced that the good life is on the other side of the river. If only I were thinner. If only I were richer. If only I had that promotion. If only I were married to him. If only I were married to her. If only I weren't married at all. People think all these things at the river, river if only. If only the kids would come home. If only the kids would leave home. You see, everything is just one if only away. And I want you to stop and think, is there an if only separating you from happiness and joy today? Is there an if only that separates you from happiness? Is it a promotion, an operation, an election, a pay raise? Think that if only those things would happen, I'd finally be happy. God would be in heaven. Well, if the answer is yes, we've just found one source of your anxiety. Because you base your happiness on either a possession or a circumstance, neither of which is very reliable. If you base your happiness on either a possession or a circumstance, and if only, then you're going to focus on that possession or that circumstance and do whatever it takes to get it, only to be disappointed when it doesn't deliver. And you end up in a cyclical thing of getting that promotion or that possession or getting that if only or changing your circumstances only to realize that it didn't do what you thought it would do. So you have to go after something else. You know, if you just stop to think about it, life becomes this rabbit trail hunt of one turn after another. Happy, then disappointed, because it didn't all work out. Happy, then disappointed. No wonder you're anxious. No wonder you're sad or tired. But the Apostle Paul has a better idea. He really does. He suggests that happiness happens not when your circumstances change, but when our attitude towards our circumstances changes. You see, happiness happens not when our circumstances change, but when our attitude toward them, our outlook toward them changes. This is what Paul teaches. It starts in Philippians 4, verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I just want to point out that the path to peace is paved with prayer. That's what we see there. The path to peace is paved with prayer. Urgent prayer, careful prayer, steady prayer. As the Apostle Paul told the church at Ephesus, he said, Prayer is essential in the ongoing warfare of life, day in and day out. So pray often, pray hard, and pray for your brothers and sisters. And every time worry raises its ugly head, what do we do? We pray it back to God. Formal prayer, spontaneous prayer, prayer, prayers at school, prayers at work, prayers in the commute, all types of prayers, prayers over the cradle, prayers in the hospital room, prayers in the kitchen, prayers in the bedroom. We're always praying. So anxiety is best treated with prayer. But not just any form of prayer. For the apostle says that, that this prayer needs to be sprinkled or sugared with, what did he say there? Thanksgiving, with gratitude. As you pray, offer prayers of thanksgiving. Oh, and now I hope you begin to see where this goes back to Joshua 4. This is where it's important to remember to remember what God has done. You'll never be grateful if you don't remember what God has done. Life is dealt with when we realize that even in the bad times, things aren't as bad as we think they are. And gratitude causes us to remember that God has already made great provision for us. He has. 
Gratitude takes us off the riverbank of if only and leads us into the fertile valley of already. We go from if only to already. The anxious heart says, if only I had this. The grateful heart says, oh, I already have this. Inside your heart, there's this bucket. This is the way it works. And this bucket is full of everything you need to cope with life. It's what you have in Jesus Christ. Sometimes you feel like that bucket is empty. And you go to God and say, God, please fill my bucket. But then if you look at your memorial stones, you say, oh, God has already given me the things I have. I just thought it was empty. But look at all the things and look at all the blessings I already have. Can I invite you to look in your bucket for a moment tonight? I want you to think about all the good things that are going on right now in your life. Really, think about it for a second. What are some of the wonderful things that are going on in your life? Well, hopefully, for all of us, or most of us, or salvation. He's forgiven us of our sin. He's allowed us to be right with him. He's given us the desire and has given us his spirit within so that we can strive with, in cooperation with him to become more like Christ. That's a great one. But maybe there's other blessings, like good health, or children, or family, or a spouse, or a job. What are some of the good things going on in your life? And let that just kind of settle down your life. What are those things going on? Stop and think about it. And then look at your heart and realize what has just happened. Suddenly all those other worries that we have fade a little bit. Because as gratitude increases, anxiety diminishes. When gratitude comes in, then anxiety grabs a satchel and walks out the back door. Because anxiety will not share a heart with gratitude. Gratitude always, always trumps anxiety. So the quickest way to deal with an anxious spirit is to treat it with gratitude. The quickest way out of the valley of anxiety is a little trail called, I am thankful. I always remember Mr. Dean up at the front saying a phrase that has stuck with me all my life. The well-worn path can be found in the darkest night. So wear out that path to your stones of remembrance so you can be grateful for what God's done. You can get out of anxiety more quickly than you ever imagined by learning to stop and remember and saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've given to me. Well, some people might say, especially if they're young in the faith and the Christian life, they say, well, I don't have too many things like that. Well, let me suggest some for you to help build up with your repertoire. For all believers in Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ himself has given us two great memorials. Baptism, communion. Baptism is the memorial of our initiation into the Christian life. It's an outward sign. It doesn't save us, but it testifies that we, by God's grace, have been identified with the saving work of Christ and that we are a portion of Christ's body, the church. And the Lord's Supper, where we periodically and regularly gather together to partake of those elements that represent his shed blood and his broken body, therein we reaffirm our discipleship and our desire to be obedient to him. They cause us to remember what he's done for us and what we say we've taken by faith. See, I find it interesting that Jesus, whom we might suppose to be so far above us in a spiritual way, might have just said, now go on, be spiritual, have faith. But he doesn't do it that way. In a certain sense, he came down to our level. He says, I know you need helps. I know that. So I give you these helps, baptism and communion. They're not just rituals. They're very important parts of our lives. So if you look back to your baptism as a sign that you've been incorporated into my body, saved from sin, and partake the Lord's Supper regularly throughout your life to remind you of my continuing presence in your life, then both of those are to remind us of what? Of Christ's presence and blessing in our lives. That which fills the bucket the most. And yet, you know, I guess there's a sense that the memorials we have as Christians go even beyond that. Because the same God who told those 12 Jewish fellows back crossing the Jordan River 
told them to carry some stones and set them up on the other side. If that's true, and it is, then those stones are our stones. And the same God who told Samuel to set up a memorial, which he called Ebenezer, that same God is our God. And if that's the case, well, then that stone is our stone. And we can look back to that memorial and any other memorial we find in Scripture, and we can say, as Christians have done all through the ages, that God is our God. That's my God. I'm going through some troubles that I don't like. But you know what? I've got a God that's been faithful in the past. I can depend on him. And suddenly, we have a change in attitude, a change in attitude that even our kids see. A change in attitude that even sometimes the world can see and say, how can you be like that? And suddenly you have the opportunity to talk about God. That God's our God. And this is the one I want to serve. That's who we were to say. I don't know about you, but I need that kind of reminder and I need that kind of encouragement. And I'm glad that God Almighty has provided it. May those memorials accomplish their purpose in our lives. And may we be found faithful, and may we not forget the great Lord of hosts, our great God Almighty. Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us grace to remember, not only to remember, but to act on the basis of what we remember. Allow us to be faithful and thankful, not merely for a moment or for a week or for a year, but help us to be found faithful and thankful to the very end of life. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's echo those positive words by singing hymn number two. Hymn number two, original second verse of this begins with, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hitherto thy help has come. It's been changed in this version, unfortunately, but it's a basic idea, and it talks about God's grace throughout our life. Let's stand together and sing all three verses. things my father-in-law used to say is that thankfulness is always appropriate. Tonight we've heard that it's an antidote to anxiety. Uh, prayer coupled with that thankfulness. Appreciate that and remember during the course of our conference we're thinking a lot about remembering and forgetting and those uh, stones of remembrance that we have remind us of the faithfulness of God. Heavenly Father, you are a faithful God and great is your faithfulness and your mercies are new every morning and this morning we thank you for those that we would receive today, and they've been many. 
So thank you for that, and thank you that as we go out into this world, we go out without having to be anxious. We go out with the idea that you yourself, the faithful God, are already there waiting for us, and so we thank you in advance for this week. And thank you that we can be anxiety-free. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.